Yeah, I think that's um, the way I approach business, which is probably very unorthodox, but not having really had any formal education, even high school, because I was unwell as an adolescent. So I don't have an education from much past primary school, to be honest. So I think you just think, oh, well, what have you got to lose? We put it all out there. And the response was overwhelming. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths, and actionable insights. Strap in. Today's guest is Kirsten Tibbles. She's the founder of Savor, the world's first and biggest online chocolate and patisserie school. She's a teacher, author, TV host, occasional MasterChef judge, and she's the official chocolate queen. Kirsten's story is a really unique one. She started out 20 years ago teaching classes to pastry chefs but she never intended to build a global business. She didn't really identify a problem to solve. She didn't develop a business plan. She didn't have grand visions to create the world's biggest online patisserie school. And she certainly didn't have plans to build a team. But two decades on, she's done all of this and much more. Saver now has thousands of students that subscribe to its classes. And Kirsten has amassed over 750,000 followers on Instagram. She hosts a TV show. She's authored multiple books. And she has long-standing partnerships with brands like Bulla and Bulgari. So how did she make all of this a reality without any real plan? In this chat, you'll learn exactly how Kirsten expanded her offering over the years, why she credits being really fluid as being pivotal to her success, and how she maintains a really strong relationship with her husband, who also happens to be her business advisor. We would love you to take us right back to the beginning 20 years ago when you started this business. And we know that because we were at your birthday party recently, which was a visual feast, but also a, oh my God, a feast feast. I mean, I think Anna and I basically ate every single type of chocolate display that was there. It was, um, it was, it was so beautiful and so yummy. Take us back. Who were you back then? What was the vision? Did you always know that you wanted to start this business? No, not at all. And I know a lot of people plan a business and, you know, do a lot of strategy and planning around it and a business plan. I was actually approached to start doing classes from a business that um, sold equipment and ingredients. And they felt that if I opened a school and utilized their equipment and ingredients, their sales would increase. So they saw it as a great way to increase their own business. So I was working full time and they said, you know, you're interested. And I thought, oh, I think there's certainly a need and a demand for education in chocolate and patisserie in Australia. And it's something that I can certainly contribute to. Um, So it wasn't a lot of input from me in terms of um, a financial input to start off because they basically gave me the space and um, the equipment that I required. And then I did need a couple of things and I reached out to some suppliers and straight off the bat, I got some sponsors on board 
to actually sponsor 20 years ago, you know, even things like oven and bowls and spatulas and things like that. Um, and I started part-time, so I still work part-time and I started doing the school part-time, but I discovered pretty quickly that um, the demand was so great that um, there was enough demand to actually operate seven days a week of classes. That's incredible. How are people finding you? I actually did an event, a chocolate festival at the Royal Exhibition Buildings. I opened in July and this event was in May and I thought, oh, it's probably good to get people interested in what we're doing in classes. And the event was crazy. Like people were queuing for four hours to get in. So I basically, people wanted to book there and then. I booked every class that I had scheduled there and then with people, you know, throwing money and credit cards at me. And I was like, well, I I have probably underestimated the demand for a chocolate and patisserie school. So I quickly actually, after the first night of the festival, it was on for three nights, I put on more classes. And then I asked people to um, fill out their order form. And in those days, you faxed it through. Oh my God. <laughs> they would fax <laughs> through their booking and, yeah, just took off from there. This is such an unusual story. I mean, another brand had an idea for this school that you then started to help them build their sales. But in a way, you know, it's worked out so well for you too. I mean, who 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 were the who was that brand? And was it like a catch twenty two, or was it just simply, we've got this great idea, we think you're the right person to do it, we're going to support you and back you, and you know, off you go. And and obviously, you've grown it into your own amazing, you know, patisserie and chocolate school. Like, can you tell us what was that agreement? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the agreement it was even very loose. There was nothing written down. So, uh, which is really strange because my husband is um, like a bulldog accountant, business <laughs> advisor. <laughs> so, I think even at the start, he just sort of thought, oh, Kirsten loves doing this and she loves what she does. So, you know, I'll let her go with it. Um, it actually worked out that that initial brand, it was such a hassle for them to sell to students and because it was a mixture of people wanting to enter the industry, home cooks, as well as professional, where they were really just interested in professionals, that they started to say, why don't you start selling stuff? So that was probably a year and a half in. They sort of turned it around and said, look, it's it's problematic because someone will spend an hour and buy one whisk. Um, we just don't have the staff and the resources for that but you've already got them there in the school for that time. Why don't you start selling them little bits and pieces yourself? So, um, and so then it turned around. So the business was in full time. So I started with just this single cupboard of items that were used in the class and it would change every class. And literally the cupboard was, would empty after every class. Oh, wow. So you became the retailer. <laughs> I became the retailer. I mean, this is such a fascinating story. I mean, it's really smart because mm. you're obviously people are coming to you for the education and for the experience and to learn a skill. And then it's like, and here are all the tools that you need to do this at mm. home. I mean, it's really clever. Was that always the the idea? Did you always have that in the back of the mind that you might open a retail space? No, absolutely not. <laughs> 
it was never in my mind at all, but I learned pretty quickly that people got really frustrated and annoyed if I had imported something from Europe and they couldn't get it themselves or they couldn't access it as a home cook because that ingredient was just available to um, industry or commercial um, hospitality industry. So people would say, oh, you, you know, well, how am I meant to replicate these recipes? So it was really a service at the start um, because I could certainly see the demand, but pretty quickly I was like, hang on, there's a little bit of revenue in here. Um that's a cream on top of the class. So it's the ability to have the student not only book more classes, so to reinvest in the business, but to also um, purchase items after the class. So can you talk us through kind of that those early days when you were growing? Like what did that look like? You had the school, then you've got the retail space. Like I imagine you're responding a little bit to what's going on, as you just said. What were some of those challenges as you were growing in those early days? The challenges when we were growing initially was because we didn't um, have full access to the facilities or the building um, and we needed administration staff. We didn't have an office. We didn't have a shop. So I just had a couple of cupboards. Um, It was a shared facility. So even things like we couldn't take the rubbish out to the back dumpster on the weekends where we ran classes. So I'd have to hide them at the front um, (laughs) because we didn't have, you'd have to walk through that warehouse and that was only open Monday to Friday. So there were a few teething problems that we, we worked out, you know, probably about seven years in that we needed to move to a bigger facility to have a dedicated retail shop, not just a few cupboards and, um, you know, be able to expand the business as it needed. So from there, you launched your online school, which, you know, the online space is a completely different space to a physical, um, you know, school where you're teaching classes and a physical retail store. Tell us a little bit about that journey from transitioning into just the physical into this online platform. So at at that stage, we were actually running classes seven days a week. So they are all short courses, one or two day classes. And we also started doing classes at night. We had one classroom, which could take 12 students. So running classes day and night. So we would turn the classroom over at 3 p.m. It really we're at capacity. So we're at the point where we looked at actually expanding into Sydney and opening a second school there. Um, But 20% of our students were at that stage coming from um, the global audience, the international, 80% from around Australia, and they were prepared to travel. So if we had people coming from New York and Sweden, um, I thought there would be some people that A, don't have the time to travel, can't afford it. Um, If I expand and have another business, I've got to duplicate what I'm doing here. It's a lot more staff. Is it going to be financially rewarding? And then I thought, how's a way to reach thousands of people while keeping the same footprint? And then I came up with a solution of doing online recordings, which were, we started out, we didn't really know what we were doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What year was this for context? uh, It was 
probably 10 years ago. So what would mm. that have been, 2012? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't employ anybody that was um, qualified in that space. Uh, so we brought a video camera and thought we'd just be able to figure it out. Uh, we couldn't. Um, and- <laughs> <laughs> we failed. <laughs> yeah, we failed very much so. It was more so we didn't have a microphone. It was just a microphone on the camera. And we're like, so classic. Yeah. How, how, they, how do they get that great sound? So, <laughs> so then I employed somebody to um, – record and edit we invested in equipment then we fitted out a soundproof little studio um, which resolved all of those sound issues Um, and we launched with 18 tutorials Um, so they're video tutorials um, which enabled people to sign up but we did a big marketing campaign leading up to that Um, and when we first launched it, there was only 18 classes and then we've added one per week every week, well, for now nearly 10 years. So let me get this right. You didn't hire anyone. You just decided to go online one day, which, you know, is kind of ahead of the curve before a lot of these online programs have really, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a big thing now. We've obviously got one, but it ain't easy. It's not an easy thing to start an online program. And then you also have the marketing to go with it. I mean, did you just, I sense, I sense no fear. I sense no fear. I sense you just jump in and do it. Like what, <laughs> what do you, is that right? Like you just feel us. Yeah, I think that's um, the way I approach business, which is probably very unorthodox, but not having really had any formal education, even high school, because I was unwell as an adolescent. So I don't have an education from much past primary school, to be honest. So I think you just think, oh, well, what have you got to lose? We put it all out there. And the response was overwhelming. So I knew straight away I was onto something. Um, From existing students that wanted to reconfirm different skills or expand their repertoire um, to people who could never attend the school through to different circumstances. And I thought, yeah, I think this is going to do very well. Have there ever been any times along the journey where you have been fearless and you've taken a big risk and you've done something like really, you know, massive and it hasn't worked out? I think that I probably refer back to my husband who's a business advisor. So if it was just me, I would have done some really stupid things and and it was probably him saying, uh, no, you're not doing that, no. Absolutely not. Rain it um, <laughs> so I haven't I haven't done things that really have failed. I always have a feel for the business and how it's going and I can see where we need to move on marketing or which is probably not as a business should be. Um, it's, I'm probably more reactive. Um, I still come up with great concepts. Um, but I think, oh, I feel this and I think this is a great opportunity. Let's move in that direction. So, yeah, it is um, I'm probably very, very fluid. Would you say that, I mean, you're a creative person. I think, you know, the space that you operate in is hugely creative. I mean, some of your work is just incredible. Do you apply that same creative um, outlook approach? Is the, is the creativity in the work that you do the same in business? I 
think no. I think for business, for me, the aspects that are probably I feel a little bit bogged down with is staff management and managing those sorts of things where it's probably systematic and very structured where when I create something, I would draw it um, in colour first. I'd hand draw it, then add flavours and, you know, um, make it look incredible because people see with their eyes where I think that in the business and the way I direct that, maybe in terms of innovation and new direction, yes, but day-to-day, no, I feel that that's very structured, very these people have their roles in the business and then it's my job to ensure that they're all working as a team cohesively. Is that something you've had to learn over time, that, you know, more structured, methodical approach? I think people tend to either swing one way or the other or sort of err one way or the other, a bit more sort of creative and fluid versus this sort of more structured, regimented, methodical, logical kind of approach. But as a founder, you kind of have to learn how to balance between the two or swing between the two depending on what you're doing. Have you found it difficult to kind of adopt that mindset of more structured, logical, methodical, regimented, et cetera? I, it's not natural, no. <laughs> 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 um I think the biggest thing for me in business along that structure is communication. I think especially when you have staff working from home and that they feel, which is usually their choice, but they feel like they're in an inclusive work environment Um, and communication is the key. So we have a morning meeting here every morning, including with the people working from home. Um, I probably structured to a point and there's probably people in the business that ensure that that happens but I'm still one because I'm outside of the business doing lots of work as well that I'm very ad hoc like do that do that do that without writing it down and people are madly scrambling writing (laughs) (laughs) so there's a little bit of that when it comes to my mind or writing emails at 1am because I've thought of something um so I think it's a it's a balance of both I want to keep talking about the content. I mean, you've got a subscription model. You release content quite intensely. It was at once a week, you said? Yeah. Yeah, which is which is a lot. That's a huge volume. And, you know, you obviously have to continue to raise the bar. The quality has to get better and better. And And as you said, it's a visual medium. Like people see with their eyes and then they taste and they're creating. And I imagine it's not an easy thing to teach online. Can you talk us through the process of perhaps coming up with a new idea? Is that uh, led by your students? Um, and like, how do you create it? How do you deliver it? Like, talk us through the kind of content side of things. We like to do, or I like to do a broad variety. So we have beginners, intermediate and advanced students for a start. So it has to be a mix of those things. Um, But what I also take into consideration is we're always looking at onboarding new subscribers. So we need to have products that are engaging on social media that make people think, hang on, how did they do that? Or I want that recipe or I want to create that for my husband's birthday. So it's a combination of 
a variety of recipes. So it's not all cakes, it's not all chocolates or not all biscuits. Um, a range of products that cater to different skill sets, as well as having that, wow, how, how on earth was that done? And I need to subscribe to see that technique. So mm. for me, it's a balance. I also have a look at the analytics to see what people are watching. Um, okay. Okay. So that's the most viewed class. Um, and we know I can see that's because that, that, and that, and we've got one class in particular that's been in the top 10 most viewed classes for about four and a half years. So I think, what, what, what is it? <laughs> uh, it's actually the black forest cake. Would you believe? Ooh. I would not have, I wouldn't have picked that, but yeah, that's a really, that. that's, that's a, a really, um, it's a very, like, people either love Black Forest or, like, hate it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a love-hate relationship. Yeah. <laughs> but I think a lot of people who cook and create don't necessarily make something for their own taste mm. or palate. So they might like the look of it or the technique and but also say that's aspirational but achievable. I think that's what my Black Forest cake is. Do you have a mix between professional um patisserie chefs and professional yeah professional chefs and bakers I guess and just regular old people who want to learn the skills just me me in my kitchen with my kitchen aid just trying to you know whip something up Caitlin is is an amazing baker so thank you you. (laughs) not Kirsten level but you know we, we aspire we aspire yeah I'm sure you're very good. Oh, thank you. (laughs) We do have a a mixture of both, which is why we do different level of classes. But you would be amazed at the level of some people who actually cook or bake at home. Um, And I think it's because they sometimes might have more time to try different things, try different recipes, where a lot of the chefs and bakers, you know, when they're in the kitchen all day, don't necessarily have a lot of downtime to try new things. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we do have um, a mixture of both. It is swaying, I think, due to COVID and people being at home, a little bit more on the home cook subscribers. Did you see a big increase in subscribers during COVID? Because I imagine, I mean, as you said, people are at home, baking and, and cooking was a was a big way past the time. People got really into it. <clears throat> Did you see a big increase in your subscribers? Yeah, we've been going nearly seven years and we're really lucky. We we launched a new website in March 2020, which coincided really at the start wow. of um, COVID. We saw a dramatic increase, but yeah, exceptional levels of subscribers. I think as way it was, there was a couple of things. So it was people having a lot of time, but cooking is a way of people nurturing their families. So it's mm. a way of... I'm going to cook this and it makes um, everyone feel better, but also people couldn't go out. Mm. Um, so they had to be resourceful with their own uh, cooking abilities, if you like. So it was that combination that really worked very well for us. So you got a new website, people were kind of locked down, they were nurturing their family. So you did see, you know, an uptick in subscribers, but was there anything a little less reactive and more proactive in terms of finding or acquiring new subscribers and new customers? 
were you hiring at this stage? Like, did you have a marketing support? Did you have marketing support now? <laughs> yeah, we've we've had um, different marketing people um, throughout, um, and we've had those for a long time. But we've used external companies where mm. we haven't had the internal resources. Sometimes it's easier because if you're not happy with what they're doing, it's much easier to change a an external provider than it is to change a staff member or train them and reinvest. Um, we didn't do anything actually out of the box. We did digital marketing, um, but we did that previously. Uh, we did find we had a massive uptake. I think that we we're very fortunate because we were probably the first um, global globally to do online chocolate mm. and patisserie classes like we were. And so a lot of companies that had a hands-on offering around the world um, had to scramble manically to try and have an online offering where we had such a massive library. I think we had already had like 300 tutorials at the wow. start of COVID. So for $12.95, everyone got access to all 300. Um, so, yeah, it was really good for us. So $12.95 a month? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, how how have you come up with your pricing or have you tinkered with your pricing over Mm. time? Because, I mean, that to me, the value of what people get for that is so great. Like you could probably charge triple that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's funny you say that because we're actually launching another website at the end of September, end of um, 2022. So, because 90% of our business now is online, both retail sales and the online classes, um, it's important to keep up with technology. But our current website doesn't allow us to increase prices. So there's huge technically technical glitches um, that don't enable us to increase prices, not in retail, but for the online classes. So we will put the prices up with the launch of the new website. Um, but all the existing subscribers will maintain their current price as long as they don't unsubscribe. So are you building your own back end or are you shifting to a different um, e-learning platform? Uh, we're using an external company to build it, but we're building our own back end. Um, it's been a long process. So we probably started this process, yeah, almost a year ago, um, as you would probably know, but it's a very complex uh, website in terms of, you know, gift vouchers, retail and online classes and the fact that they can put everything in one cart um, and because it's a reoccurring payment. um, So it is quite complex, but we're really looking forward to that launching um, and giving us more flexibility within functionality um, of what we can do in terms of promotion and pricing. Did you weigh up I guess all your options. I mean, yeah, as you said, it's complicated and building your own back end, it's not <laughs> it's not it's not for the faint hearted. I mean, you no, definitely have to have yeah, you've got to have the numbers and and yeah, it's it's an expensive exercise. Did you look at, you know, kind of plug and play and and looking at third parties and and assess I guess your options or were you very adamant that you wanted your own back end and took just kind of took that approach? No, I was very flexible and open and uh, got a lot of advice on it. Probably mm. took us probably four or five months of research to determine what was going to be the best outcome from our, for us. 
ongoing. The problem with the diversity of what we do is the volume of plugins we would require from WooCommerce. And once you get that many plugins, it really slows down the site. So we had to weigh up what our different options were for, um, you know, the speed of what we were doing, but also less complications going forward. That'd be exciting when you have a brand new website with the, oh. all the systems, all the things. And you can increase your prices. <laughs> so <laughs> has, that been, has that been a set price since you launched the school 10 years ago? It has. Wow. Yep, $99 a year or $12.95 a month with one new class added every, every, week. every week. That's um, insane. That's insane. And if you have a look at the process, we have a videographer, a photographer, an editor, a copywriter, a graphic designer. We have two chefs testing recipes, me writing the recipes, me recording them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super high production value. It's huge production. And the recipes are so detailed that if you just printed off all the recipes, you'd have the best book you ever had. Apart from apart from the tutorials, so yeah, it's just not um, it's viable because of the volume of subscribers yeah. that we have, but um, obviously it's really good value at the moment. We will edge it up a bit. So, how long did it take for the online school to become viable? Because I imagine in the beginning, um, at that price point with that level of production, although maybe it's increased since then. Was the physical retail space in the physical um, school supporting the online school? And at what point did sort of it change? Switch. Mm. Absolutely. So the hands-on class was running at seven days and we dropped the nights when we started the online classes, but the hands-on still ran seven days and the retail was certainly supporting the online classes. We didn't have the resources that we have now for allocated to online classes. So it was run, <laughs> was run uh, very lean. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote all the recipes, I copywrote them and, you know, um, the guy who filmed and edited them uploaded it all. So it was really just the two of us in that process until it slowly built. Has your um, personal profile been instrumental in the growth of the online school? I think, you know, you are a prominent master chef, judge, you famously set the final challenge in 2017. Is that a big driver of new subscribers, your personal profile and the sort of work that you do adjacent to the core business? Yeah, I've got a business that is separate to Saver, which is all the collaborations. I've got a TV show, The Chocolate Queen, which I'm in the middle of filming at the moment. So Mm -hmm. we finish that off next week. Um, What I believe is that if I market myself, a percentage of that will certainly lead to retail sales. Um, You'll get a percentage of those people wanting to do online classes um master chef's a tricky one because i think a lot of people watch master chef because they like to eat not necessarily um recreate or cook themselves so i think it's a very small percentage that would push themselves to one mm. make the master chef challenge cake some people do um master chef certainly helps me personally to lift my profile but it's not necessarily the audience that are interested in chocolate and patisserie education, if you like, but we get bombarded with people wanting to buy the cakes that I set as challenges. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Is there a reason that you set up the 
Kirsten Tibble's business, I guess, separately? Like, was there ever, um, did you ever think about just kind of having that as a different revenue stream within Saver? Like, why did you decide to separate that out as a separate entity? That was my husband's decision, but um, (laughs) he's always looking at um, the longer term plan for the business. If we were to ever sell Saver, Mm. uh, we have the Kirsten Tibbles brand. It's it's a completely separate business. Um, So he's always looking at what is going to be the best outcome um, and how to work that, um, for which is going to be beneficial for us long term. Yeah, I think you highlight a great um, point, which is to have people around you that are always looking out for the best in you and your business. And, and you know, we can't do this alone, right? It's totally. not, a, not an easy journey. You have to have good business brains around you, no matter who they are, whether it's your husband, your best friend, your mentor, your coach. Um, so who else has helped you? Who else has been in your corner? I think... Um it's really essential to have staff that are going to be beneficial and have skills to contribute to the business that you don't necessarily have or that you may not have time to input into the business. So I think that the value of good staff um, can't be discredited. So I've had really good staff Mm. through the years that have um, really helped and contributed and brought valuable um, aspects to the business that I was unable to contribute myself. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest things. It's probably my husband probably who doesn't work in the business. He has his own really successful business, but he probably oversees a lot of the financial side. Well, he does. Um, and a lot of the big financial decisions and he says, you know, you've got this grant and I've applied for this grant for you where I would never know that those grants even exist. Mm -hmm. So I've got a marketing grant, we've got an export grant for the Mm -hmm. online classes, Um, but he also tells me what percentage of the business should be spent in wages um, where I'd be like, I really need someone in this role and I want to spend an extra $30,000. he will say, no, you're not. So (laughs) he sort of um, pulls it back um, and you know, makes you think a little bit differently about what you're doing. Because when you're there in the moment, I think a lot of people Mm. think this person's skill set is amazing and they would be so good to the business. But is that going to make your cash flow a little bit challenging? Is it worth the stress of that? Um, Are you better off getting someone with a lower skill set and then investing in that person over a longer period to train them? It's so great having someone so close to you that has a different skill set, but also just a different perspective. Because I think you know, as you said, we can get really stuck in our own sort of way of thinking. So having that that different perspective is super valuable. Does it ever, or has it ever caused any sort of tension when you're like, oh, but I really, really want to do this thing or I can see the vision and I know this is the step that I need to take and he's like, well, actually, it's not the best financial decision. Like, has there ever been points of tension there? All the time. <laughs> Every day. Yeah. Plain and simply, yes. Yes. And, and I think it frustrates him because he said, I work with some of the biggest companies in Australia and I advise them on how to run their business and how to be more efficient and financially. And you just won't listen to me sometimes. So ultimately, he'll put his point across. But he always does say, the decision is yours. And there has been occasions where I've gone, you know what? I'm going to back myself and I'm going to do what I think is right, even though he doesn't agree with it. 
Um, so not very often, but a few times I've actually gone through and, and done that. That's funny. Um, Kirsten, you have, we, we, we've heard that you um, have a great ability to be able to embrace change. And, you know, we've obviously all faced a fair bit of change over the last few years, but yeah, there's something something to be said about feeling comfortable in the uncomfortable and, and um, continuing to evolve. Why do you think you are so good at embracing change? I think that you need to change to grow. And I think that people who are doing the same thing and it's successful are scared to make any alteration to that. But I think to encourage new customers that may not be familiar with you, you need to offer something that is outside of what you're currently doing. So, and for a business to be successful, I think they need to continuously evolve. So I've always had that in my head and maybe it's based on the fact that I don't have formal training and I probably don't look at the figures like I should. So I work more on instinct rather than, um, you know, mortar and concrete like this is what we've got and this is what works and it's going well let's not change a thing where I'm like I've got this idea I reckon this would go really well um and being a small enough business we're nimble enough to just Mm. jump straight on it how many people in the team there's 15 and do you ever feel like you have to convince people in the team you know if you have this really strong gut instinct about something or strong intuition are you always able to sell the vision to people or have you ever received resistance or pushback? I Sometimes people will give me an opposing point of view, which I'll take on board and sometimes I'll, I'll agree with them and say, you know what, I think you're right. I didn't think of it in that context, so I will agree with them. Um, and other times, even if they don't agree with me, they'll, they'll go through with it um, and say, yeah, but I'll always finish it with, look, we've got nothing to lose. Let's see how it goes. And we can always revert back or we can always change it. And it, I mean, and that comes down to social media as well. We try different things because a lot of our marketing comes from social media. So the, the way algorithm is changing mm. and, you know, reels is we, are reels better received filmed on the phone or with a, a camera and then edited. So, you know, sometimes with a creative team, we go backwards and forwards about what's the best method or that's a little thing of, of changing and let's give it a go. They say, oh, I don't think that's going to work. And I say, yeah, let's just try it and we'll see um, how it goes. What's been one of the hardest changes you've had to make in the business over the years? Probably when COVID hit, we stopped hands-on classes. So I had mm. to make five people that have been with me for a long time redundant. Um, and that was really the backbone of the business. And that's how we started. The business was with hands-on classes. And as I said, we had people traveling from all around the world to attend classes. So that was probably the hardest thing is we also had to cancel a lot of classes and refund literally tens of Mm. thousands of dollars to people who had booked in advance. So that was the hardest. How did you manage that situation? I guess, you know, that's, incredibly high pressure, high stakes for not only you and the business and cash flow, but also your employees and their lives and their livelihoods. Like how did you as a as a human being handle that and cope with that? Oh, it was 
it was very tough, but I think at the start of COVID as well, I had no concept of what impact COVID would have on my business as well, being that hands-on classes was such a big part of our revenue. Um, it, it was at the point, if I didn't make these people redundant, do I then lose the whole thing if things get quite dire? Um, I did financially support them and help them get other positions. Um, and fortunate that in hospitality, that's not a hard thing mm. to achieve. But yeah, it was it was agonizing, to be honest. It was terrible. Has there ever been a time, Kirsten, in the last 20 years where it's just been too much that you've perhaps wanted to give up or do something else or throw in the throw in the uh, tea towel? No, never. I think there is times where it's far too much and I work, you know, 16-hour days and don't have a day off for weeks on end and that clearly due to sheer exhaustion you're like, mm, should I just go and work at a supermarket and scan? <laughs> scan? Not to take anything away from those people but, um, you know, where you're not having to think things through constantly but always try to look at the future and say, you know, this is where the light is. Just look towards, you know, in three weeks' time, you're going to have gotten through all this and it's actually going to be um, really great. You're going to have achieved this because a lot of what I do now, we don't see on TV for like the TV show, The Chocolate Queen is Series 3. Now, we, that doesn't come out till March. Um, I've filmed other TV shows that don't come out for months at a time. So it might be like, oh, I'm working like crazy now, but then it becomes a little bit easier. Do you take holidays? I have I have a sixteen year old, so um, I do try to take holidays. I'm working in Paris next month at the World Chocolate Masters as the head judge. Oh so my, God, my amazing. So my family's coming with me. So we're going to take <laughs> se seven days off after I finish working, which will be lovely. That's a nice little perk. <laughs> oh, a great perk. A great, great perk. You've achieved so much. You've done so much. You've won awards, accolades. You've, you know, set the final challenge, as Anna said, in MasterChef. You've got a, you know, thriving online school. Um, I mean, you've got TV shows. Honestly, I mean, it's the dream, right? You're basically living the dream and chocolate's involved. So you really are living the dream. <laughs> what else do you want to achieve? Is there anything else left on the bucket list? I always keep going. Um, my book chocolate has been reprinted so many times that it's made me a little bit complacent. Um, but I am working on another book now, which will be my third cookbook, uh, which is a two year process. Um, I'm looking, I'm building a, um, ha a passive house in the Yarra Valley, which is a hundred percent off grid. And that will be um, my next big project once that's finished is to um, grow um, as much of my own produce, have honey, have eggs, have fruit as I possibly can. Obviously, there's lead time in that, but I don't know how I physically have time to manage it all, but that <laughs> is something that I'm really passionate about doing. So, yeah, that's something that I want to look at in the future. That is the dream. Oh, Going we, off grid. That's amazing. Yeah. Projects like you're in the veggie garden. Or, you know, oh, my God, that, can we, that is the dream. <laughs> can we come hang out? Can we come yeah, hang out? Yeah, visit any time. The door's always open. Right. Great, oh great, great. God, amazing. <gasps> so we have one last question that we'd like to ask you. 
as someone who has been in business for 20 years, you've achieved some incredible things. What is one piece of advice, maybe unconventional advice, it could be business advice or wife advice that um, you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think my piece of advice would be that you can't stop learning regardless of what you do and you should be open to learn. And if you don't try and apply new things that you learn, it's very hard to grow in your career or your business. So regardless, I'm a pastry chef, but I learn things about the computer, about technology, um, as well as techniques in the kitchen. So really that's what keeps me engaged, energetic and enthusiastic about what I do. We loved this conversation and it really reminded me that opportunities actually are all around us. I really love the fact that Kirsten didn't actually mean to start this business. It all came off the back of a single, simple conversation with someone who asked her to teach classes using their product. And she could have easily said no, but look at where the yes has led. It's so inspiring. It's so epic. So have a think about your life. What conversations are you having right now that might lead to something great? What conversations might you have tomorrow or the next day or next week or next month that might lead to your next opportunity? It's important to remember that every single day brings a new possibility. We just have to be open to seeing them. We also felt really inspired by Kirsten's success, especially given that she had a bit of a tough upbringing and little formal education. And I think if you're listening to this and you're questioning whether you're smart enough, if you're capable enough, if you have the right skills, if you're savvy enough, if you're credible enough, then I really hope that listening to this story has made you realize that you are worthy, you are capable, you actually have everything that you need already. All right, team, that is it for this episode. Remember to press follow on Apple or Spotify so you get pinged when our next episode drops. And to see some of the video clips from our session with Kirsten, come and find us on Instagram at lady.brains. 